Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bose. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and it's my honor to uh, be your host and moderator. This afternoon, we'll be uh, in here for an hour or so, and then we'll have books outside for the purchasing and signing and, and wine for the drinking, I guess. Um, I see a few young people in the audience, and I'm not sure this is true for them, but for me, David Stockman is a legend. Back in the day, he was the point man for the only serious effort to rein in federal spending in President Reagan's first year. He was the most important member of the Reagan Revolution, except for Reagan himself. We learned a lot of lessons from that effort. I think we learned you should do it now while you've got that new president momentum going. You should make it big so you can rise above the spenders and the rent seekers who are always in control of Washington on a day-to-day -day basis. You should stay on the offense because, as Jefferson said, the, progress, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And so when I try to explain to the 30-year-olds on my staff just how important David Stockman was in those years, I tell them he was the leading budget wonk of the late 70s and early 80s. Indeed, he was like Paul Ryan with real power except that he voted against the Chrysler bailout. <laughs> that's actually how I met him when he was the only Michigan congressman to oppose the first of the Chrysler bailouts. And I was establishing the Council for a Competitive Economy, which was intended to be a business group that would oppose subsidies and protection for business. And you have may, may have noticed that it's not around anymore. <laughs> then he became Reagan's OMB director, and he tried to cut the budget. And he inspired my first article in a major newspaper. This was a Washington Post outlook piece uh, in which I dissed his mere $26 billion in budget cuts. Little did I know that for the rest of my career, that was the best I would ever see. <laughs> David spent eight years in Congress and OMB trying to rein in spending and deficits. And then he gave up and wrote a book called The Triumph of Politics, Why the Reagan Revolution Failed. And then, unlike so many congressmen and cabinet members, he left Washington. And he really left. No lobbying, no think tanks, no hanging around at the Capitol Grill. He left the wealth-destroying part of the economy and joined the wealth creators. More recently, as the national debt approached and passed $15 trillion and $16 trillion, He's begun once again to take an active role in public life. I met him again after many years uh, around uh, the 2010 election when we bonded over our shared concerns about the growth of government and the misguided Iraq war and easy money and mounting debt. And I probably told him at the time that I was hopeful about the incoming class of Tea Party Republicans, and I'm not sure what he thinks of that idea now. We don't agree on everything. He worries more about deficits. I worry more about the size, scope, and power of the federal government. But he's been trying to limit government since 1977, and it's a pleasure to welcome him to the Hayek Auditorium. David Stockman. Uh, I want to thank you, David, for all that nice introduction and all those uh, undeserved uh, uh, compliments. But you had one fact wrong, and I really have to clarify. I left Washington in 1985 not because of virtue, but because I was run out of town on a rail. So uh, that was uh, why uh, you know, I never came back, really. 
Um, I am very happy to be here because some of you may have noticed uh, that in the last uh, few days I have been enormously politically incorrect. And uh, I had a, uh, like a summary, a condensation of my book uh, in the New York Times Sunday, and it elicited a firestorm of denunciation. Um, and um, the reason I know that is that uh, Professor Paul Krugman told me so. Um, and he told me that I was a cranky old man uh, because I believed in such things as I'm going to talk about today as sound money, fiscal rectitude, and free markets. But, you know, the interesting thing about this is that if you're writing a book on these kinds of serious matters, you might even want to arrange, next time you do a book, David, arrange for Krugman to denounce your book <laughs> because it immediately uh, causes sales to soar. Now, you, some of you have my book. You can see it's 700 pages of real heavy-duty financial and economic monetary history going all the way back to 1914 when the Fed opened its doors. It's full of wonky stuff, uh, analyzing public policy, and it's number four on the Amazon list, and I'm not bragging, but that happened overnight once it got denounced by Krugman. And I noticed then, I wasn't paying any attention to Amazon, I was just trying to tell the story of my book, and I noticed there's only three books uh, in front of me. Two of them are diet books, and one of them is called The Walking Dead. And so um, I uh, conclude, you know, I, I would like to say my book is about a diet, a massive diet we need in this nation, both fiscally and in terms of the scope and scale and purposes of government, but even more so in terms of getting this rogue, out-of-control central bank back into some kind of box where it is not a clear and present danger uh, to the United States. Now, I know we can talk about uh, many uh, features of that, but what I'd like to do now is suggest that even though there's 700 pages here and there's a lot of history, that really there are three big ideas in this book that I think are pretty much along the libertarian mainstream. I have been a deviant every now and then on certain issues. Um, in fact, uh, uh, I was called uh, a serial apostate <laughs> the other day by uh, some writer. So I never stay always straight and on the straight and narrow. But there are three fundamental ideas, and one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is take these ideas, fiscal rectitude, sound money. We hear that. We know we have a feel for what those mean. Free markets. And trace them through the ebb and flow of history and events and policy decisions and uh, you know, financial uh, world uh, evolution over decades and decades to try to identify those inflection points, those critical time, times when choices were made that led in the wrong direction. Because obviously today, the free market is almost dead. Today, the fiscal uh, equation amounts to a doomsday machine. I don't know how it's going to be stopped or how the national debt doesn't keep growing uh, towards 30 trillion, 115% of GDP, and I could go into some of those things as well. So we asked, what I've tried to do in the book then is to say, how did free markets get abolished? And they did for the most part. Or why in the heck did we bail out Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan, and AIG, Morgan Stanley, AIG, the auto, uh, companies and so forth 
And that was done by a Republican administration, so I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom guy, but if a Republican administration does this kind of abomination, then there isn't a lot left in terms of resilience, resonance, I guess I should say, for free market policy uh, in uh, the governing process. So if sound money clearly is out the window, and everybody knows that, but let me give you one number that has really been striking to me. And that is on September 10, uh, 2008, uh, before the Lehman Brothers uh, uh, collapse occurred and then all the madness happened after that, the balance sheet of the Fed was 900 billion and it had taken the grand total of 94 years to build from zero when they opened the doors to 94 billion. And that's important, or 90 billion, because 900 billion, I'm sorry, 94 years. And that's important because remember, the balance sheet of the Fed on one side has assets, mostly government debt, bills, bonds, and so forth. On the other side has the liabilities that the Fed has created. In other words, in shorthand, the money that is printed uh, over uh, many, many, many years. Now, if it took them 94 years to print the first 900 billion, and during that period we had some great Fed chairmen like William McChesney Martin, he's one of the heroes that I have in my book, some spectacular Fed chairman like Volcker, I really think he was great, and we had some real disasters like uh, Arthur Burns and uh, both uh, Greenspan and Bernanke. So, but still, if it took us 94 years to get there through good and bad policy, listen to this one. In the next seven weeks, Bernanke doubled that 900 billion to 1.8 trillion. He was printing money at the rate of 700 million an hour. No joking, those are the facts. You can see it on the Fed balance sheet that's uh, issued every Thursday afternoon. Now, they've got all kinds of excuses. Wall Street was melting down. We can get into that lately. No, the bubble they had created in the first four or five years was being deflated. The debt that was being liquidated was bad debt. It never should have been there in the first place. So this was a healthy thing going on. And yet, here we are today, and this is why I think the idea of sound money is so lost. A healthy thing is happening. A purge is going on and yet we have a panic at the Fed that basically ended up propping up all the assets that were way overvalued as the uh, repo debt and commercial paper market debt and unsecured debt was liquidated. The Fed came in right behind it and recreated uh, uh, the funding for this whole house of cards. Now that is about the worst performance that any central bank could make and it's led to all kinds of bad things. We can talk about the speculation and so forth. So, if we are today in a world where we have utterly unsound money, where we have a rogue bank that has basically destroyed the financial markets, remember, I think all of you would agree, the interest rate is the price in financial markets. In the money market, the overnight rate is the price of money. Uh, in the mid and longer term debt markets, the yield or the interest rate is the price of money. If we don't have a pricing mechanism in something as fluid and dynamic and giant and changing by the hour and minute as the financial system, which is the heart of capitalism, then how is the thing going to function? Well, we don't. We don't have honest interest rates. We have a Fed that pegs them. 
that sets them, that administers them. And as a result, the whole market has become perverted, and it now trades on what the Fed is going to do next week, ne next month, on whatever smoke signal some highly paid so-called money market economists can figure out You know what the last three swing members uh, of the open market committee uh, may uh, decide to do. And therefore, the market is not discounting the future. It's not discounting risk. It's not discounting the contracts in any particular security uh, that's being valued. It's not discounting cash flow. It's discounting the Politburo, the Monetary Politburo of 12 people and which side of bed they wake up in the morning and what kind of intellectual tick uh, they have uh, this day or that. So it's all <laughs> in bad shape. The fundamental things that we believe in, fiscal rectitude, sound money, free markets. The book is how it, about how it happened, the flow of history over time. And in order to make it, and I wouldn't I, make it more vivid, make it more real, because you can't rewrite you know, uh, 80 years of history uh, even in 700 pages, believe me. So I have basically tried to pinpoint critical inflection points and some of the great actors who came across the stage. And I've divided them into 18 policy heroes and 18 policy villains, not because I think they were good or bad people, but at these important junctures, they made good or bad decisions. They led to the decline, to the undermining uh, and erosion of these three core ideas, uh, or they helped uh, keep them alive. Now, let's take fiscal rectitude. And here is where we get to from the abstract to the concrete in a debate that has gone on in the conservative community. I've been involved in the budget fights, or I was for a long time. And I come out on the side of you have to balance the budget, even if you think the spending is too high, after you've given a good, sustained college try at, at uh, uh, starving the beast or shrinking the budget. So we have this fundamental debate that I'd like to talk about in history for a second on this idea. What is the right uh, strategic route? Starve the beast, we've heard a lot about, or pay the bills. And I come, out, uh, I come out on the side of pay the bills. The thing that came out of the Reagan era, which really was a horrible legacy, was the notion that deficits didn't matter and the rationalization that we were only trying to starve the beast and if the deficit got big enough or persistent enough or uh, extended far enough in time, surely uh, they would wake up and shrink the government. Well, it's at 24% of GDP today, 25 uh, by some counts. It was 22 when I got there way back in 1981. So uh, starving the beast hasn't worked. It has only led to a two-party competition in free lunches, the Republicans being the party of stimulating the economy, and frankly, that's statist, micromanaging the economy through the IRS code. Uh, they became what I would call, the, what I call the uh, Keynesians of the prosperous classes, versus the Democrats uh, using traditional Keynesian spending and uh, you know, liberal uh, interventionist approaches. So when you have two free lunch parties competing for the electorate, you end up with massive, consistent, growing, and ultimately uh, incurable national debt, and that's where we are. Now, my hero in this is Eisenhower, 
and my villain is Gingrich. Eisenhower basically said when he took office, the wartime rates I've inherited tax rates from Truman are way too high. They are hurting the economy. He hired a treasury secretary who's another one of the quote heroes in my book, George Humphreys, who was a, stir, a sternly, stoutly anti-tax industrialist from Cleveland. He ran Cleveland Cliffs or one of those. And both of them together agreed we are not entitled to do the easy work of cutting taxes and getting rid of these very high rates that were left over from World War II and the Korean War until we've earned the right to do it by balancing the budget. And so they went in hammer and tong after the Defense Department initially, and they were able in three years to demobilize the vast defense establishment that we had from the Korean War. And in today's dollars, to make it real to all of you, today's depreciated dollar, the defense budget that Truman left him was 515 billion today's purchasing. And by the time I got done three years later, it was 370 billion. In other words, the greatest war hero, the only great general we ever had in the White House in this century, knew that a quarter, a half trillion dollar defense, uh, defense budget, even against the Soviet Union in those days when the Soviet Union had a little industrial vigor left, was not necessary. He unstintingly cut it, and not just by nickel and diamond. He changed the whole strategy, uh, cut the uh, military force by a million men, dramatically reduced uh, the land forces so we couldn't go around invading and occupying everyone, and relied on massive retaliation, which I think was the right strategy. But the point is, after he got that finally done and made major cuts in other parts of the domestic budget, he got a balanced budget in 1955 and then began to chip away at the tax code as well. And during his administration, we had the only period of consistent balanced budgets. We had a recession that really was the leftover uh, from the overheating of, world, of the Korean War, and then uh, a sharp but short one in 1958. But the point is, Eisenhower demonstrated the way that I think, the only way that a democracy can function fiscally, and that is do the hard work first, cut the spending, then when you earn the right to cut the taxes, do it, and if you do it that way, the people will see the cost of big government. If the people are told by Krugman, don't worry about the debt because you know it's only 80% uh, of GDP, which is a lie, uh, then they will uh, not demand spending cuts. They will not demand hard choices. They will not understand why they're being proposed if they are. And so that is uh, one of the things that, um, you know, is a big theme in my book. And I call Eisenhower the anti-Gingrich, because Gingrich and I had a huge fight in the early 80s when he accused me of wanting to be, after I realized we had to raise taxes because we cut them too much the first time, in which he accused me of wanting to be the tax collector for the welfare state. Well, I finally figured it out after all these years of smarting under that um, uh, epithet that actually Eisenhower was the tax collector for the welfare state. He showed that it had to be done if he couldn't cut tax uh, spending anymore and that Reagan ended up being the tax collector for the welfare state as well, wouldn't admit it. There is no shame in it as long as you keep trying to cut the welfare state and reminding people that their taxes are where they are today, including 15% 
payroll tax, employer, employee, on the big social insurance programs, and that those are unnecessary if we could shrink them, but until we can shrink Social Security, let's say, and uh, means test it and get rid of this terrible FDR idea of social insurance for everybody, uh, you're going to have to pay those taxes. Now, the problem, and then I'll move to my next point quickly, the problem is after you go long enough under the Star of the Beast theory, under two-party free lunch competition, the deficit structurally becomes so big, ingrained, and persistent, and the debt begins to grow to such enormous magnitude as it is today, that then it become, you pass the tipping point and it becomes a doomsday machine, which is something that can't be stopped. And I'm afraid we're at that point. I see no way that we're not going to be, at the, in the rosy scenarios they're using to forecast the budget today are way too optimistic. If you do a realistic estimate of where we are with current policy after the, the so-called New Year's uh, compromise, we're looking at 15 to 20 trillion of new debt in the next 10 years, not seven. Sound money. Here is where I have a big uh, uh, demarcation line in my book between Milton Friedman's folly and Carter Glass's wisdom. And Carter, I'm not talking about Glass-Steagall, I'm talking about Carter Glass, chairman of the House Banking Committee, founder of the Fed, who envisioned the Fed as a banker's bank that on a passive basis ran a discount window where real live commercial banks uh, Main Street banks, as he called them, the banks of industry and commerce, could bring their good collateral, let's say inventory loans or receivables uh, that had uh, already been uh, produced and shipped but not uh, matured, could bring them to the discount window and borrow money at a penalty rate above the free market interest rate that the Fed was supposed to have nothing to do with. Now, the model of the banker's bank that was behind uh, the original conception and Carter Glass's idea uh, had two features which are unbelievably novel today. One is that the Fed, in its first uh, statute, was not allowed to buy government debt. It was only allowed to liquefy real commercial paper that represented economic activity coming out of the private enterprise system as a result of the to and fro of commerce and not because of what someone sitting on a board in Washington thought uh, was necessary in terms of bank reserves and so forth. Now, it, that idea of a passive banker's bank is the opposite of the open market committee to be in the debt markets day in and day out, buying debt, buying debt to peg interest rates because they're trying to manage the whole financial system and the whole GDP. As Bernanke said, we're going to get the unemployment rate to 6.5% or some damn thing, and he can't even measure it. Now, that's central planning. That's the opposite principle. That is the central bank actively intervening in the market to say, this is how much liquidity we think ought to be in the economy. This is what the rate of debt creation ought to be. These are the interest rates that, in our wisdom, we decide will bring about all these wondrous things. Now, I call that monetary central planning. I call that 
the Monetary Politburo, because there are 12 people deciding, uh, you know, what the uh, liquidity of the financial markets ought to be and the financial system. It's the opposite of the Carter-Glass notion, and the, the Carter-Glass notion, even though uh, a lot of people identify him only with Glass-Steagall, which I actually support as well, but the Carter-Glass notion was that there is no target GDP. It was not like Professor Krugman or even Art Laffer who says, you know, the GDP ought to grow at 4%, uh, and if it isn't, then you ought to do this, that, and the other thing to make it happen in Washington. Uh, the idea that came out of the original uh, glass uh, banking uh, central bank was that GDP will be whatever it is. If it grows at 2%, fine. 4%, fine. If it goes through a period where it's only growing, you know, half a percent or negative, that's okay too. That's the result of the interaction of producers, consumers, investors, real people in the free market. And therefore, the free market is incompatible with central bank monetary planning, and the kind of Fed that came out of Friedman's idea, and I know he, uh, you know, his defenders uh, will find this, uh, you know, uh, very uh, much, uh, they'll contest this very much, but it is the opposite because it said a board of 12 people could decide how much M1 we need, and therefore, knowing how much M1 we need, they would know how much credit would be created by the banking system, and if the banking system created the right amount of credit, uh, the economy would grow at the right rate. Actually, Milton Friedman was a central planner, and he didn't know it, and he was naive politically because how can he have believed, which he did, that if we give 12 members of a Politburo after we've severed the Bretton Woods and the gold standard and any linkage of what the central bank does to a redeemable asset, once you give that power to the 12 members of the uh, uh, Open Market Committee, you end up with a Politburo. Now here's the dilemma. Friedman was a very naive man. He was an idealistic man, but somehow he appears to have believed that 12 monetary eunuchs could get uh, appointed to the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, and they would sit around most of the day reading book reviews and playing Scrabble or something, and occasionally uh, change the dials a little bit to keep the money supply growth at 3%. Well, that wasn't going to happen, and you saw that immediately when they closed the gold window and they turned great Professor Arthur Burns loose to print all the money that Nixon wanted in order to get the economy booming by July 1972, which I have it all in my book. That's exactly what the White House taped system shows that he told um, uh, uh, Ehrlichman and Haldeman he wanted done uh, well before Camp David and all that mess. So unfortunately, uh, Friedman's idea got used by a statist nationalistic politician for his own short-term electoral needs. He brought all of the free market economists of the era out to Camp David, and as you remember, they came up with the NEP, and uh, that was, uh, even at the time, I was only a young man in Washington. I don't know if David was there yet. But even then, I um, almost bent over laughing because I knew the NEP stood for the New Economic uh, Program Plan that Lenin put into place in 1921 in order to bail out his huge experiment in collectivism and communism, which was failing. 
But anyway, that was the line of demarcation. The book goes into a whole chapter on Friedman's folly and how it led to not his monetary eunuchs, but the people like Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and this Rosengren guy uh, up at uh, uh, the Boston uh, today, uh, Federal Reserve of Boston, who last week uh, gave a speech in which he said, yes, we are trying to force people out of savings accounts that only pay uh, half a percent because we want them into risk assets. In other words, he's saying, we want granny to go out and buy some junk bonds because we, the Monetary Politburo, decided that that is better for the economy. And if granny wants to have something more to eat off the savings that her husband, late husband left her than dog food, she's gotta buy, uh, she's gotta buy high yield bonds, junk bonds. This is a terrible, terrible, abuse of democracy. Of all the monetary sins and economic errors and so forth that I could talk about in the unsound money of the Fed today, the worst thing is it is utterly undemocratic. They today bailed out the banks over the last four years by driving the deposit rates damn near zero. And as a result, banks have been able to generate the spread between almost no cost of deposits and whatever they're getting in uh, yields on their securities and on their loans, they've taken that artificial spread totally created by the Fed, used it uh, to uh, repair their balance sheets, and now say, look at here, we're healthy, uh, we paid back the TARP, uh, and now let us do some more stock buybacks and let us go out and pay some big dividends when in fact it has all come out of the hide of savers in America. Now if you put that proposition that can we tax the savers of America by four or five hundred billion, which is what it amounts to if you do the math, each year so that we can take it out of their savings accounts and put it in the balance sheet retained earnings of the commercial banks, how many votes do you think it would get? I don't have to answer that rhetorical question. It would get no, no votes. So the Fed is doing things today, driving people into risk they don't want to have, crushing the savers of America, inflating bubbles time after time. This is the third time, by the way, we've been in the vicinity of 1560. We were back there, you know how long ago? 4,750 days ago is the last time we were at the same level that the market's at today, and we've had uh, two huge collapses in between that did everlasting damage. So that is the whole issue of uh, sound money. There's a lot of steps along the way. I reached back to FDR because I really think when he confiscated the gold in 1933, that was the beginning of the slide uh, that eventually led to Camp David, that led to Greenspan, that led to the long-term capital bailout in 1998, led to the panic in 201, the housing bubble, uh, the awful bailouts of the banks and so forth after that. Now, the, the third thing is free markets, and my point is um, bad money pollutes free markets. And therefore, we don't have, uh, we can't say today that if some outcome occurs uh, in the financial markets, that that is an honest result of the interaction of supply and demand. As I said, all the markets are simply trading the Fed, front-running the Fed, buying anything that they think is going to be propped up, supported, uh, or liquefied by the Fed. 
It's totally distorting behavior. And as a result of that, it leads to massive gambling and to leverage and to uh, rent-seeking behavior that has nothing to do with economic growth, wealth creation, or productivity, but gives capitalism a bad name, gives free markets a bad name. And the problem is a lot of free market people, in my judgment, misunderstand the application of the free market principle to Wall Street. Wall Street is not a market. Wall Street is a branch office of the Federal Reserve. And so therefore, you can't judge what's going on there under uh, some kind of notion that uh, it happened in the market, and so therefore, um, the outcome is okay. Now, that's why I think the bailouts in, in 2008 were so insidious. They, and I say in my book, we had a coup d'etat, effectively, an economic coup d'etat, by Goldman and the other bankers who occupied the third floor of the Treasury. And finally, by September 2008, the rot on the balance sheets of these big investment banks, which were really uh, hedge funds in drag, really, or in disguise, um, was so bad that they toppled under their own weight. And finally, Mr. Market was raising his hand, saying, let me bring this nonsense to a halt. Let me liquidate these, you know, this house of cards, this layer upon layer of create an asset, bid up the price, borrow money against it, buy some more of the same assets, drive them higher, use that as collateral. It's called hypothecation, rehypothecation, rehypothecation. It is the same thing as fractional reserve banking, and some of you students of that know the problem once uh, you get the string going. So we should have let it all go down. I have a whole section in my book on the BlackBerry panic and how AIG was not a contagious economic disease that was going to spread around the world. It could have gone under. All the bad paper, the so-called CDS, was written at the holding company. They could have bankrupted the holding company. All of the insurance companies were in subsidiaries, regulated by state insurance commissions. They had dividend stoppers and capital standards in place. They couldn't have got the assets out. They couldn't have got the cash out. They wouldn't have used it to uh, pay off the CDS and create uh, further runs in the market. In short, what was going on was a run in the wholesale money market, the overnight money market in the canyons of Wall Street, and it would have burned out in the canyons of Wall Street, and it would have taken Goldman down, so be it. It would have taken Morgan Stanley down, so be it. The other three were already gone. Morgan's, Merrill Lynch was being carried out in a slab to Bank of America, but <coughs> Stearns was gone, and Lehman was. It wouldn't have hurt anything because the, there was a lot of talent and capability in those three companies. The speculators and gamblers in those three companies would have lost their equity entirely. They would have lost a lot of reputation, and some of them would have reorganized afterwards, hung out a shingle, calling it Goldman M&A II, and it would have been a lot more cautious place than the one that was bailed out uh, with all of this uh, uh, federal Fed intervention and uh, TARP money. So the, uh, one of the interesting stories I tell in the book is to compare the BlackBerry panic of 2008 with the panic of 1907 before the Fed. And in 1907, when they had the Great Panic, it was resolved in J.P. Morgan's library, which still exists on Madison Avenue in New York today. But J.P. Morgan was using his own money and the money of his syndicates of bankers, including the clearinghouse banks of New York. 
And night after night, the, the supplicants came in. They brought their collateral, their balance sheet, sheets. J.P. Morgan's young men looked at them and said, you're insolvent, goodbye, <laughs> uh, meet your maker. And others, they said, you're solvent, but you've made some horrendous mistakes here. You're gone. We're going to give a loan to your bank, but we're bringing in new officers tomorrow morning. Fired all the officers, fired all the boards, resuscitated the solvent banks. And why did they do it that way? Because it was their money at risk, and they weren't going to create moral hazard in the future. Now, when you have the Fed with a printing press, or you have TARP with the taxpayers' money, they don't care. And what happened? Not one guy was fired that I can tell in any of these banks that were rescued. Not one board was told, uh, take a hike, you screwed up, you didn't uh, uh, you know, do your, discharge your duties running this bank. So anyway, that led uh, to um, some very serious um, you know, assaults uh, on the free market, and again, uh, it's one of the reasons why we're in such difficult uh, uh, trouble today. Well, these are the three great ideas that go through the book. There are people on both sides, and some will say, why in the hell do you have Bill Clinton in the hero category? I'll admit that. Because he balanced the budget three times, and I know a lot of people won't like that because he balanced it at a high level, but it needs to be balanced. We can't live with permanent debt. We're going to ruin uh, the country. We're going to ruin the future generations. So that's uh, kind of a little, that's chapter one. And I hope uh, <laughs> the rest of you uh, will look at the book and we can talk about uh, some more and answer some questions. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. All right, David is going to stay here at the podium and call on questioners. Please raise your hand. Wait for the microphone to get there so everybody and the audience on, uh, online can hear the question. And please announce your name and affiliation. And while we're waiting for that, I'm going to ask the first question. David, am I right in thinking you identify 18 heroes and 18 villains and Ronald Reagan isn't on either list? That's so, right. Which, which, which list did he fail to make the cut? Well, <laughs> No, the fact is there are a lot of people that aren't on either list that played major roles uh, in history because they did some good things and they did some bad things, and I don't think they caused the, uh, pushed forward the cause of fiscal rectitude or sound money or free markets, uh, plus or minus, so they ended up uh, you know, getting a buy. Now, Ronald Reagan was terrible on defense. I'm sorry. This massive defense buildup that we had was unnecessary. It was allegedly directed against the, you know, the threat of a Soviet first strike capability and all that. We know now the Soviet Union was collapsing under its own weight. It was never true. But once they got all the money, and I describe how we accidentally got a 7% growth top line, 1.5 trillion over five years. Once they got the money, they used it all to build a massive armada of conventional uh, air, land, and sea forces that had no use against the Soviet Union, but were a wonderful uh, fighting machine for uh, wars of occupation uh, and intervention. And so therefore, I say the unintended legacy of the Reagan defense buildup was not that it wasted so much money and created so much national debt, which it did, but that it handed this vast fighting machine to the Bushes who could then intervene in places we never should have been involved in, and they didn't have to go to the public and ask for the taxes uh, to do that. So anyway, some people agree with me. <laughs> All right, uh, so. Questions? Hold on. 
Roman Bueller with the uh, Madison Coalition. I worked for Bill Thomas for 12 years. I don't know whether he made your list or not and which one. <laughs> no, no, but uh, yeah, I could cover everybody, but Bill was a fine man, let right. me tell you. Yeah. So my question is, uh, if, you look, if you look at Washington's uh, uh, borrowing habits as an addiction, uh, and you think about medically most addicts need an outside intervention, is there some kind of a role for a constitutional fiscal discipline amendment uh, to deal with the problem? Good question, and let me refer you to chapter 34. <laughs> the last one in the book, you don't have to read the rest of it, but I say, and it's, it's, it's so-called, you know, it's unsophisticated for budget people to believe in a balanced budget amendment. Well, I have come to the conclusion that's the only way you're going to stop this thing, but I have a new twist on it. I believe it, uh, the constitutional amendment ought to be an omnibus one, and it also should include fundamental political reform, including extending the terms of House and Senate and President to six years with a ban on re-election. So therefore, no one spends one waking moment when they're after they're sworn in on campaigning, on re-election, on raising money, on uh, pacifying the PACs, on uh, going to these ridiculous uh, affairs on K Street and getting their wisdom from people who have a vested interest. Uh, so if we couple the constitutional change that I'm talking about and put government back in the hands of citizens uh, with the constitutional uh, amendment uh, to balance the budget, Every two years, because remember, the scheme that I'm talking about is there's an election every two years. You elect one-third, one-third, one-third. So there's a public referendum uh, every uh, two years. Uh, but if, if we did that, then in the two years of each Congress, they would re it would require a balanced budget, and it would require the Secretary of the Treasury to certify every month that this Congress was on track to meet its balanced budget uh, mandate for the two years, and if it wasn't, he couldn't certify that, there'd be an automatic sequester every month. And if he did certify it, and it was later, he would be under um, uh, obligation, legal obligation, not to uh, willfully <laughs> or knowingly um, mislead the Congress. And uh, he would be under the same kind of penalties that corporate executives are today when they certify their quarterly uh, 10Qs and their annual 10K. Same regime. And then I think you would have a balanced budget mechanism that could actually work. Um, and if not, you'd have a lot of former Secretary of the Treasuries in jail. Uh, one way or another uh, would be better than what we have today. <laughs> Right here. <clears throat> um, hi, I'm Daniel Solon. Uh, I'm a student at George Mason University. And I was just wondering, you mentioned that Bill Clinton was a hero because he balanced the budget three times. And I was just wondering, um, why isn't Gingrich considered a hero since he was part of that, those three balanced budgets? Um, well, you know, the Gingrich has done so much harm, in my view, on other issues that I couldn't bear to put him on the list, okay? Uh, that's the main reason. Um, you know, in terms of the liberty issues, the man is a nightmare, okay? Everybody here knows that. 
Uh, but also, he's the, one of the greatest double talkers uh, that I have uh, run into in modern history, and I'll tell you. And here we are struggling to try to get some spending cuts through the Congress, and I get an angry call from Newt Gingrich and his little caucus of young guys saying, we want to come to talk to you because we have uh, some uh, bones to pick. And so we get in the meeting, and he says, you're being the tax collector for the welfare state because I was trying to get a package of one-third tax cuts, two-third spending cuts. We're not going to do it. And by the way, you don't know anything about economic history. Let me explain economic history to you. And he told me it's in three stages. And the first stage is hunter-gatherers. And after about a half hour in the hunter-gatherers, uh, I said, well, the meeting's over. Thank you, because we don't have any more time. Now, you know, I don't think he uh, is one of the great thinkers of our time. I think he's done a lot of damage, and that's why I, w I didn't, I put him on the, uh, I think he's on the villains list, if he's on any list at all. Over here. Oh. You can always do a night comedy show. You're good at this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm warming Smith, up. I'm going to be on the Daily Show next week. So oh, thank you for your <laughs> for your indulgence. I'm practicing. You know, thank you. Uh, Fred Smith, Competitive Enterprise Institute. You're, I'm sure you have many other suggestions for reform, but the one that you did mention explicitly was a balanced budget of some sort. The question is, how does one know whether you balance the budget or not, given that spending is going to have trouble with the regulatory, the opportunity costs dealing with regulations are all off budget. The entitlements, where the gamesmanship that goes on in every level of finding out what an entitlement really is, is massive. And the moral hazard costs, which are almost never on budget. So how does one avoid the gamesmanship that will let you know or not know that you really have a balanced budget? Did Clinton's budget, for example, really include entitlements, moral hazard, and regulatory cost increases? It included everything that's counted in the budget. Um, and I would say the way that you can be sure that the budget is trending towards balance is to put that Treasury Secretary under Sarbanes-Oxley. And that's essentially what I'm doing. In other words, there ought to be consequences for lying to the public. So uh, the regulatory cost is a whole another issue. That has to be fought out on its own terrain. It's just as deadly in some instances as uh, the budget. But I'm talking about the fiscal equation right now. Entitlements would be in my uh, balanced budget concept, and when the sequester would occur automatically because the Treasury Secretary looked at the numbers and said, we're not going to make it, and I'm not going to spend 10 years as a guest of Uncle Sam uh, after I leave office, then you would cut back the entitlements too. I mean, you would do it across the board, a 2% cut, a 3% cut, a 4% cut. After a few times of that happening, you would then end up having the the Congress and the political system face the choice issues, the trade-off issues, the priority issues, the merit. But until they get house trained with the automatic sequester, which is why I think the sequester going on right now is a wonderful thing. It's going to begin to house train them on the need, if you want to be elected to the Congress and you don't like the pain that you see going on in certain areas, then step up and say, give me a deeper cut somewhere else, line up a majority to do it and get Congress back in the business of making choices, not simply passing out free lunches. Hi, my name is Lisa Miller. I'm Tea Party WDC and native here, born and bred. 
my father came here after World War II and uh, because of the deep cuts, we had a recession here for nine years. And since I have friends and family here, their question is, what would we do in the Washington metropolitan area you know, if they actually substantially cut? Um, one of those things regarding regulation is if we cut the federal money, then the legislation could conceivably be repealed at the same time. But secondly, um, there'll be adaptation here in the metropolitan area because of technology, so the recession would not be so bad. So uh, it's game theory, but what do you think about their resilience in the Washington metropolitan area? Uh, you know, uh, as I look around at all the gleaming new buildings as I drive around Washington, remember I got run out of town on a rail uh, 25 years ago, I can now visualize the growth of big government, okay? And if we ever shrink this monster, there's going to be a depression uh, in Washington that, as one uh, Humphrey, Mr. George Humphrey, one of my heroes, said, will curl your hair. That's <laughs> what, what, what he told Congress in 1954. If they don't balance the budget, we're going to get a depression that'll, that'll curl your hair. Uh, it's unavoidable. I mean, this is an island of prosperity that is artificial, and it's the result of utterly unsustainable fiscal policies. It's a transfer of wealth uh, from, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, and St. Joseph, Michigan, where I come from, and lots of other places around the country uh, that is not producing uh, a higher standard of living or more national wealth for the American people. Um, maybe in the middle back here somewhere, yeah. <clears throat> okay, we'll, we'll go. go ahead, yeah. You're in favor of public financing for elections. Why is that? Uh, because I have a different scheme than what the normal debate has been. I came here in 1970, the first job, I worked for John Anderson of Illinois. First job I got assigned to was reforming campaign finance. And I've learned after, how long is that now, uh, 43 years or something, that there's no way to do it in the current electoral system. And therefore, when you go to the six-year term, the citizen government, the no re-election, the no campaigning, the no PACs, because I'm going to abolish, I'm going to outlaw all of that, then public finance is okay because it, uh, it allows people to fund their race the first time uh, they stand for office, and they're only going to stand for office once, and they're going to go back uh, to being a cattle herder in Texas or whatever they are. And that's, uh, that's okay with me. It's the lesser of a lot of other evils, but when you look at the way crony capitalism is actually totally enveloped like a wet blanket, the whole policy process in America, you cannot untangle that as long as there's unlimited PAC money. And that's why I totally disagree with the Citizen United decision and why we ought to get money out of politics entirely. But the better thing to do is get politics out of our private economy, and we can't get politics out of our private economy until we get rid of incumbency. You know, my reform plan is the seven abolitions, and one of the abolitions is to abolish incumbency, and another one is to abolish uh, the open market committee and the Mo Milton Friedman model of the Fed. But until, if we get uh, uh, incumbency out of politics, I think it's simple to have a two-month election every two years for one-third of uh, you know, the Congress, uh, fund it with uh, a very small amount of public money, and then get on uh, to real uh, public business as opposed to constant electioneering. <clears throat> 
My name is Bill Klein. I'm a retired physician, not an economist. But I always wonder about where inflation fits into this. And my example is always World War II, which, if I remember correctly, was about $290 billion in 1945, which I don't remember ever paying for. That was my debt. I'm always curious to know if we're going to have to retire the $16 trillion by inflating that enough so that that debt becomes worthless, the same as $290 billion is today. But where does inflation fit into all this? Well, inflation is obviously an evil, but I think we've gone beyond the point where we're likely to have uh, another great inflation because the bond market will collapse before the inflation can even get started. That is the genius of Bernanke. Uh, in other words, he's flooded the financial system with so much liquidity that it has everyone front-running the bond. It's all owned on a hair trigger. The rest of the debt is in the vaults of the central bank. And when the whole gig ends and the market players lose confidence in uh, you know, the, the Fed's ability to manage and manipulate the market, they'll start selling and there will be a huge collapse of the bond market and there'll be a deflation. In other words, what I think I was trying to say is no one owns the bond in the private market. It's rented. Uh, they go out, the big fast money traders, they buy it, they put it into the repo market the next second. When they go into the repo market, they're borrowing roughly 98 cents on the dollar they just bought, so they got two cents of equity up. They capture the spread, they laugh all the way to the bank and sleep like babies at night because they know that Bernanke is going to keep the overnight rate at 10, uh, 10 basis points and uh, 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 prop up the bond. The problem is, when confidence breaks, which it will at some point, just like it did in 08, when all of this uh, you know, toxic waste, which was really the CDOs, the CDO squareds, various other kinds of securitized debt, when that toxic waste suddenly was called into question, the Fed couldn't keep it propped up, and that's why the big selling wave hit the market, and that's why the investment banks started to crater and two or three of them fell. So the next time, though, the bond market bubble is so much massively bigger than the CDO uh, uh, and mortgage-backed security bubble that when this thing goes down, there's no, there's no bid. There's, it's a one-way market, all, all offers, no bids. Uh, uh, massive selling, uh, terrifying decline, it will lead to a deflation. And therefore, cash will be okay, in my judgment. It's the only safe place to hide. Now, someone asked me at another meeting earlier today, are you saying we should put our money under the mattress? And I said, you misunderstood me. I think you should put your money in the mattress. Um, <laughs> but uh, other than that, um, I, I, that's the way I view uh, the future uh, uh, going forward. Yaroslav uh, Martinuk, a retired uh, researcher. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Greenspan is one of your villains but he was an Ayn Rand fan. What happened? Uh, does anybody have the book here? No, well, uh, let me, I have to refer you to a chapter that will explain all of that very succinctly, and it's called Greenspan 2.0. <laughs> and in the chapter, I cite some fabulous essays that he wrote in 1966 showing 
that the Keynesians hated balanced budgets. They hated the gold standard for the same reason, because you couldn't have permanently unbalanced budgets under a gold standard. He also showed that the crash of 1929 was a huge credit bubble caused by the Fed. And once it started to burst, it was uncontainable. And so he basically laid out a powerful case for fiscal rectitude, sound money, and free markets. So I call that Greenspan 1.0. And then I track case by case, year by year, what he did when he was in office. I call that Greenspan 2.0. And basically, he essentially abandoned, uh, if not uh, totally disavowed, everything that he had previously believed. And he got carried away by being the head of the Politburo, by being the great maestro, by being, remember, the committee to save the world, wasn't it, on the cover of uh, Time or one of those, uh, he and Summers and, uh, uh, I guess, Rubin. Uh, and as a result of that, he began to make up excuses like you wouldn't believe. Like when we had Black uh, Monday in 1987, he panicked and flooded the market with liquidity and basically began to treat, uh, teach the traders that there was a Greenspan put and that he wouldn't allow the markets to correct, uh, to cleanse themselves. And once that set in, he became more and more hostage of the creature of his own making. Long-term capital management bailout, what kind of nonsense was that? Long-term capital consisted of 500 speculators and traders in a small office in Greenwich who were doing a service, that is, trading, that could have been replicated by 10,000 people. So if they went under, who cares? Why were they bailed out? They were bailed out because they had $100 billion to gamble with on $3 billion of equity, because all the Wall Street banks had loaned them money hand over fist in repo and in um, one kind or another um, of uh, uh, loan and other uh, financial uh, support. So it was really um, you know, like the families got together and bailed themselves out, and it was all sponsored uh, by the Fed. Uh, that's uh, just a small piece of the everlasting damage that Greenspan did, but especially with the view of Greenspan 2.0 versus 1.0, that you can't see a bubble, you can't hear a bubble, you can't smell a bubble, you can only let it crash and then flood the market with liquidity afterwards and try to reflate it. That is so wrong. That is so damaging to the fundamentals of capitalism and free markets that it really needs to be <laughs> denounced uh, loudly, I think. And that's the heart of Greenspan 2.0. And he still says it today. You can't tell if there's a bubble. Couldn't see the housing bubble. Everybody else could. What do you mean? 200% increase in housing prices? I'll give you another number that some of you may like. Housing prices started to go up in mid-1995. I think it was July. And they went up every month for 11 years in a row averaging 11% a year. Now, there is no free market theory that says anything, especially when there's unlimited land and ability uh, to generate new housing uh, in response to market signals, 
There is nothing anywhere that says a uncorrupted free market would produce 11% increase year after year, month after month for 11 years in a row. Well, what did it do? It basically told bankers that, well, if you put out uh, credit, uh, a mortgage to some uh, shaky looking uh, borrower, don't worry, because if he gets in trouble, loses his job, don't make his payments, well, you can just refinance it, uh, and the housing prices are going up, and so your loan will be covered. So all of the massive losses that were generated in the mortgage system were being paper, papered over and hidden by housing prices rising month after month and bankers engaging in this great refinancing shuffle that was enabled by the Greenspan Fed and the bubbles that it was creating. Another reason why you need prices, you need financial discipline, and you need to put on the bench and permanently retire the open market committee of the Federal Reserve. Let's take one last question. Okay. Uh, a new one here somewhere, here, I think, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Gabe Nielsen. I'm an intern for the House Agriculture Committee, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your feelings um, in relation to, like, the CFTC and uh, the futures market and how that plays into uh, your thoughts on uh, economy. Uh, okay, um, I have a chapter in the book. <laughs> Glad you asked that. Uh, uh, um, on the whole rise of the futures market, um, and what I'm saying, what I say in that is very interesting. There never was a futures market in currencies or in interest rates during the golden era of William McChesney Martin and stable money. He was sound money. They didn't have gold standard by then. It was pretty much gone. Although we had Bretton Woods, and the reason you didn't have uh, uh, hedging requirements or these huge futures markets, is there was no profit in it. There was no social function in it. If the exchange rates were stable for the long term, buyers and sellers in international commerce didn't need to hedge the exchange rate. Likewise, I show during the golden era from 1957 to 1964, the interest rate on business loans up to five years or even short-term money barely moved was stable, maybe moved 1% or 1.5% a year. During that period, there were 76 months in which the prime rate, which was the main interest rate for business loans then, did not even change. Now, that is also a product of sound money. You don't have yo-yoing, wildly uh, swinging interest rates, so therefore people didn't need to hedge. So all of these huge financial futures that were created after they severed uh, the connection to gold, closed uh, the gold window, shut down Bretton Woods. All of this developed later, and it became a necessary function uh, for people trying to compete in the, uh, or be, for, you know, engage in commerce uh, internationally. They had to buy hedges, but hedges are really uh, you know, uh, an economic waste. If you had a sound money system, you wouldn't need half of this massive trillions and trillions and trillions uh, that trades every day. I give one example. Today, there is about four trillion worth of transactions in the currency hedging market every day. Staggering, four trillion daily. World commerce daily trade is 40 billion. So therefore, the hedge is 100 times bigger 
than what is being hedged. Why is that? Is that because every 14 minutes, uh, Toyota's uh, export managers are resetting their hedge? No, it's because 99% of what's going on is just speculation in these large markets that were created once the economic need for it uh, was um, uh, uh, generated uh, when we went to floating rate, fiat money, activist feds, and so forth. So it is one of the additional uh, great deformations that I talk about in the book. All right, okay. thank, thank you, you, David Stockman. <laughs>